I call the title of the sermon and the things I'm going to cover to Bill on Saturday and uh, so he can get the bulletins together at his leisure on the weekend. And I told him uh, Acts 2, 1 through 4, and as I got into my study, I said, my goodness, I might not get out of verse 1. But I did. So we are going to cover verses 1 through 4. We're looking at the day of Pentecost, a day that brings a conclusion to the Old Testament and ushers in the church era and the era of the New Testament. It also fulfills a number of prophecies, some from the Old Testament and some from Jesus Christ himself. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And as I read that verse 1, if you think that I can do a whole sermon off that, I almost had it, but, uh, but I had to add some more. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. The, the, they refers to the 120 from the previous chapter that were gathered, waiting for the coming of the Spirit. Jesus, in his final instructions, told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not too many days away. So, I've got two questions. Why Jerusalem? And why Pentecost? There were more believers in Galilee than in Jerusalem, so why weren't they there? Well, that first question is the easy question. Jerusalem was the leading city in Israel and the center of the Jewish religion. The why Pentecost question <clears throat> seems easy, too, on the surface. Now, Pentecost was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that the Jews celebrated. The first one was the Passover. The second one was Pentecost. And the third was Sukkoth. A pilgrimage feast is one where it is commanded by God that all males in Israel come and appear before him in Jerusalem. So the first pilgrimage feast is Passover, and we see that Jesus and his disciples traveled up from Bethany to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They were commanded to do that. It wasn't that Jesus was only going to fulfill scripture by going and being crucified by the Jews there. It was commanded that all Israeli men, is, Israelite men, they're not Israeli yet, Israelite men appear before him. The uh, Passover is also known by, by different names. I, I don't know why the Jews do this, and uh, basically we call, well, here's why. We call July 4th, the uh, 4th of July. I guess we also call it Independence Day. So they have different names for these different feasts. And Passover was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second travel feast is Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, the Harvest Feast, or the Feast of Leavened Bread. The last is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, 
So all Israelites were commanded to go to Jerusalem for these festivals. In Exodus 23, 14, 7, it says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names or of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you shall come out of Egypt. Now, when I go through this, I'm actually going to be calling the month of Abib, uh, the month of Nisan, uh, same, same month, just different language. Anyway, he says, uh, you shall, none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. The God said this to Moses as he's giving the law verbally to him. Later, when Moses is given the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, he destroys them when he finds the Israelites have built a golden calf in his absence, worshiping false gods. So he destroys the tablets by throwing them down. God is angry with the Israelites. But Moses intercedes for them, and God instructs Moses to make two new tablets that God will then inscribe the law on. In doing so, in Exodus 34, 18 through 30, he says almost exactly the same thing. He says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck at the, all the firstborns of your son you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Continuing in verse 24, he says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So there's a sure sign that God is serious about the men of Israel appearing three times before him in Jerusalem at these feasts. Now, what does Pentecost mean? Pentecost means 50. Simply, the Jews were to count 50 days after the Sabbath, after the Passover. Now, we have a little problem here. Because the Sadducees counted the 50 days from the Sabbath after the Passover differently than the Pharisees did. The Sabbath... The regular Sabbath is Saturday, but there were special Sabbaths throughout the year, especially at feast times, because Passover is a Sabbath, but it doesn't fall on the same day of the week every year. Interestingly, it only falls on four days of the year. 
and I didn't do the math to figure out why that is, but it doesn't fall on a Sunday, and it doesn't fall on a Tuesday, and you'll have to look it up yourself to find what else that other day is because I didn't write it down. Anyway, there are special Sabbaths. So what the Sadducees read was from Leviticus 23.15. It says, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering to the Lord. So that's what the Israelites did. They, they celebrated the Passover. Then on the next Sabbath, a Saturday, they started counting their 50, 50 days. The day after the Sabbath is called the Feast of First Fruits. It's the Sunday after the first Sabbath, after Passover, to the Sadducees. To the Pharisees, however, the Pharisees went back to Joshua 5.11. The first Passover in Canaan is where this comes from. Joshua has just crossed into Canaan. Moses has died. Joseph, uh, uh, Joshua has taken over for him. And it says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So, the Pharisees read this as that Passover is a Sabbath. And the day that after they ate the Passover, they started counting for the 50 days until Pentecost. Now, according to the sources I found, so you might take this with a grain of salt, it's not in scripture. Joshua crossed over into Canaan in the year 1406 B.C. And there are people who have done the conversion calendars for this. So when the Pharisees look at this, the Passover was celebrated on a Wednesday, and they started counting from a Thursday. So the first Pentecost was celebrated on a Thursday. But it is always celebrated by the Sadducees on Sunday. Now, after the fall of the temple in the AD 70, there is no more sacrifices in the Jewish faith. The Pharisees' tradition won out, and the uh, Pentecost is celebrated on the Pharisaical calendar and not the Sadducee calendar. Uh, calendar. Got that all? Did that clear anything up? Don't worry, I'm going to get it worse here. Sometimes, however, the calendars coincide. And the Pharisaical calendar, counting of, uh, for Pentecost, and the Sadducees' work. And that happens when Passover falls on the Sabbath. Now, coincidentally, and I say that ironically because there are no coincidences with God, the year that Jesus was crucified, they fell on the same day. So to work this out for you, if Passover 
was on a Saturday, the Feast of the First Fruits was the next day, a Sunday. It also means that 50 days after Passover, Pentecost, also fall, fell on a Sunday. Interesting to note that in the Jewish Passover celebration, the pa- Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, is slain on the date Nisan 14. The Passover itself starts on Nisan 15. And the Feast of the First Fruits is Nisan 16. And that year that was a Sunday. Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was crucified on Friday, Nisan 14. And while the Jewish people were celebrating Passover on Nisan 15, which commemorates the saving of the Jews from the angel of death as it passes over their houses, the Lord Jesus was in the arm of that angel of death, if only metaphorically, preparing to end the sting of death through his resurrection. And on Sunday, Nisan 16, when the Jews celebrated the Feast of the First Fruit and they raised up sheaves of wheat in a wave offering to God, when they were doing that, Jesus, the first fruit of the resurrection, leaves the tomb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 23, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man, who has, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, if you think the Apostle Paul used the term first fruits by accident, I don't think that the Apostle Paul ever spoke anything by accident. He always knew exactly what he was saying. Other resemblances between the Jewish Pentecost and what we Christians celebrate today Many significant events took place on Pentecost in Jewish history. King David died on Pentecost is one of them. But the most important thing that the Jews celebrate on Pentecost is the giving of the Torah. The Ten Commandments from Moses, from God to Moses and from Moses to the people. It is the birthday of Judaism, Pentecost is. But what is Pentecost to Christians? With the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, the Christian church began on Pentecost. 
Coincidence? As I said before, there are no coincidences. The giving of the law at the Old Testament Pentecost pointed to the inability to gain salvation through the keeping of the law and the necessity of bringing a Savior into the world who would then bring the grace of God. The New Testament Pentecost celebrates the bestowing of that grace in full to all believers. Pentecost in the Old Testament bestowed the Mosaic Covenant on the Hebrew people. But Pentecost, for Christians, is the coming of the New Covenant. Pentecost to the Hebrews brought them divine revelation, but the Christian Pentecost brought new revelation and the completion of the scriptures. Moving on now to verses 2 through 4 in Acts 2, and I'll read the whole thing. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, and I'm reading the first verse again, obviously, so. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. But note that there was no wind. There was only the sound like wind. Now an interesting thing about the word used for wind here, it's the Greek word pneuma, from which we get pneumatic. So it does mean wind. It can mean just a breeze, but it's also the word for spirit in the Greek, as in the Holy Spirit. I know it's always translated a mighty rushing wind, but maybe it's the sound of the Holy Spirit arriving, because in fact, it was. Now, that's just me, so don't, don't go that any further, but... And everyone in the house was startled, it says, uh, by the word suddenly. They were expecting something, but not that. Verse 3 says, Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, they should not have been surprised. I didn't write down this quote, but it's, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John said it out loud. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that is what happened. The Holy Spirit, the sound of wind, with no wind, and divided tongues of flame as of fire that did not burn. You know, fire is used often as a symbol of God's presence. We all know the story of God calling Moses to be his representative to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the middle of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In this case, God appears as a non-consuming fire, such as what lit on the heads of the disciples at Pentecost. Later, when Moses leads the heaven, uh, Hebrews out of Egypt, it says, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Clouds were also a sign of God's presence. We saw that when Jesus uh, uh, was taken up into heaven. He was taken up into the clouds. And again at, the, at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then in Isaiah 66, 15 through 16, Isaiah gives the final judgment of the Lord, and he says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, 
and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. God is described as a consuming fire, a refining fire, a fire of judgment. So divided tongues as of fire and a non-consuming fire like God in the burning bush lit on each one of them. And then came the gift of tongues. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. I looked it up in, I should not have bought this commentary. It's a Greek commentary on the Greek language. And it is way over my head. But I was able to decipher enough to um, see that the other tongues here are languages. They are not ecstatic speech. They are known languages. And we know it from the passage to come next week. But I don't want you to go away from here thinking that this was tongues. As we know them from charismatic churches today, they were known languages And this gift, this speaking in tongues, and, and there were a million people in Jerusalem that were not from that area. And next week, we'll, they give the cities, and it goes in a circle from east around counterclockwise, telling you where the people came from. So we have a million foreigners in this town. But the thing is, is that they did not need the gift of tongues to communicate with the foreigners because all the foreigners already spoke Greek. Greek was the common language. So, though it was used as an evangelical tool, it was not the reason it was given. It was given as a sign of the coming of the Spirit upon the church. So now the Holy Spirit has come to the brand new New Testament church, so... How did the Holy Spirit's ministry differ from how he operated in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operated from, quotes, without. He came upon people. Yeah, and you will uh, see that. He, you might be surprised that the... Take a show of hands. How many people know... Who the first person the Holy Spirit came upon that we know of in the Bible is? Because it's not who you think it is. Even if you don't think it's somebody, you're still wrong. It comes as late in the Bible as Exodus 31.3. During the construction of the tabernacle in Jeff, take, take heed on this because you and I can both take uh, solace. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table, 
and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that, I have commanded you, they shall do. The first people who got the Holy Spirit were craftsmen, working with wood, working with gold. I find that amusing, because I know that God finds favor in the work of humans, and that he finds more favor, I think, in the common things, Jesus was a carpenter, than he does with the learned men, because God did not look pleasantly upon the scholars of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. But the work of man's hand, he does find. Jeff and I um, agree that as craftsmen, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're filled with the Holy Spirit because we're Christians. But that's beside the point. But the filling of the Holy Spirit fell only on select people in the Old Testament. In Numbers 11, the Spirit falls on 70 men. We're not going to look these up. And they began to prophesy, it says. In chapter 24, the Spirit falls on Balaam. Chapter 27 sees Joshua receive the Spirit as he replaces Moses. In Judges, we see various judges receive the Spirit. Chapter 3, it's on Othniel. Chapter 6, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, it says. In chapter 13, it was Samson's turn, and the Spirit of the Lord had to enter Samson several different times. And if you follow Samson, you'll know why. In Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon Saul mightily. In chapter 16, the Spirit departed from Saul and came upon David. But not so with those gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost. John fourteen sixteen sees Jesus telling his disciples that he would ask the Father to give them another advocate who would never leave them. Ephesians 4, 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you have the Spirit of God, you are sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1 says it also, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this is another point about Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is permanent. We saw in Judges that the Spirit departed Saul and entered David. And I saw some people who wrote that, well, the Old Testament saints who were saved in the Old Testament didn't lose their salvation. But I do not see that as being really taught this way. Saul lost favor with God, and it's fair to assume that Saul lost his salvation. Not so with Christians. The Holy Spirit infills us and seals us to the day of redemption. Now, the Old Testament receiving of the Spirit was temporary. But in the New Testament, it is permanent. 
The advocate that Jesus had sent from the Father will never leave us. We have Jesus' word on that. So also, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given as a gifting to accomplish a certain task. Think of the craftsman in the tabernacle, given the Spirit to craft the house of the Lord. That gift was temporary. Even David knew that in Psalm 51, after, uh, after Nathan the prophet went to see him about certain things wrong in his life, David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then here we go. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David concluded by asking God to renew a right spirit within him because he knew it was within God's power to remove his spirit and to remove his kingship. Christians do not need to ask God to keep his spirit within them. It will never leave. We have Jesus' assurance of that. We are, however, to be constantly filled with the spirit. If we have the spirit living in us, how can we be filled with the spirit again? Because it says it several times in scripture that we are to be Filled, constantly filled with the Spirit. And it's going to be a poor analogy. But in a way, I'd, I'd compare this to a car getting low on gas. When, the, uh, when you get low, it doesn't mean you've lost your gas tank. It means that your gas tank needs to be refilled. In the Christian life, there are ups and downs, and I think you all have been through those. Times of incredible ministry, and you don't know how you're doing it, and times in the desert when you don't know how you'll ever do it again. In those low times, we need to be filled with the Spirit once again by prayer, by the reading and meditation on scriptures, And yes, by the service that we do to God. The Spirit of God in our lives is not just to do a job, but to assure our salvation. One other point about the differences between the Old Testament filling of the Holy Spirit versus the New is that we've seen from the Spirit in the Old Testament that it came from without. It came upon people. But in the New Testament, it lives in us. We've also seen in the Old Testament that the Spirit was given temporarily 
while in the new it is forever and seals us to salvation. But also in the Old Testament, the giving of the Holy Spirit is exceptional. It is not normal. Few received the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But in Christianity, the gift of the Spirit is, as we say in Calvinism, normative. It's the normal state. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit sitting in a pew, you're not a Christian. It's the normal state of Christians. It's how we know you're a Christian. Well, we don't know. it's how you know you're a Christian. It's a gift given to every believer, along with gifting in different ways to accomplish the work in the kingdom of God. So to open this sermon, I talked of the Feast of the First Fruits, which fell on the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. What was the point of giving to God the very first of your year's harvest? It just came out of the ground. It was just ready to be harvested. And they take the first fruits, and they offer it as a wave offering before God. What if a drought comes? What if nothing else grows? And yes, that is the point. The offering of the first fruits is that we trust that just as God provided the first fruits, God will provide the harvest. In Jeremiah 2 3, the words of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. It says, I remember. And he's speaking of the nation of Israel. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. But even here in Jeremiah, God is pointing out that there's a harvest to come. It is not Israel. Israel is the first fruits of the harvest. There is another harvest to come. And the Holy Spirit came to indwell Christians on Pentecost, the feast of the harvest. Of the harvest. It's odd how that works, isn't it? And just as Jews were the first fruits of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit entering the room of believers and indwelling them ensure forever the full harvest of believers is to come. Hallelujah and amen. And that would normally be the end. I have one little last tidbit that didn't fit into the sermon, so it's sort of just a sort of P.S. to y'all. Passover was the feast of unleavened bread instituted when the Jews were leaving Israel. Pentecost is the feast of leavened bread. Is it that the church is what Israel is supposed to be? Leavened by the Spirit, sent out into the world, the Holy Spirit leavening the whole lump, the world? Just a thought. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, we do thank you that we can worship you, that we can trust you to know the end from the beginning, that you have sent the Spirit to bring us into our salvation and our communion with you forever. We just pray that you will keep us from the evil one, keep us from harm, help us to serve you through the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.